I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my Thoughts on Money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast, what we like to call Tom. I'm Trevor Cummings, your host of the podcast and your author of this week's Thoughts on Money blog, and I'm here with my good friend and colleague, none other than Mr. Sean Latimer. Hello. Drum roll, please. Oh, drum roll before or after? I don't know. We can do it after. Okay. Applause, please. Yeah. yeah. Crowd goes wild. <laughs> uh, I wrote an article today called The Allocator's Cookbook. Uh, a lot of people that listen to this podcast and have read Thoughts on Money before know that I love basketball. Um, I'm a busy man. Uh, a lot of little kids at home. Love what I do here at work. Very involved at church. So not a lot of hobbies. But my other hobby not a lot of people know about is I love to cook. Uh, Sean, you love to cook too, No. Uh, I like to barbecue. I think people, they don't necessarily count that as much as like actual cooking. It's an art though. You uh, you got a, one of those Traegers, you know, yeah. uh, you make the best ribs in the neighborhood. That That's kind of true, yeah. What do you like about cooking? I, you know, I thought one sentence you said in the article that really hit home for me was uh, you really enjoy watching other people eat it and then say like how good it was or how much they enjoyed it. And I was like, oh, that like hit home. Like that, that is the best because that... So we have family in Omaha that we go and visit every now and then. And uh, we probably had the best ribs we've ever had in our life by one of their friends who is like, he's kind of like a pit boss, like you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Like he gets hired by companies. He has some giant smoker. He makes like 10, 20 racks at a time. And he made probably the best ribs I've ever had. And I I was like, hey, these are good. Give me some tips. And he did. And uh, it's funny, but one of the best compliments I got from uh, my oldest, Mason, is, hey, these ribs are really good. They're almost as good as Mr. Kevin's. And that was like the biggest compliment ever. So, uh, but probably the best in the neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, there is something about figuring out how to do it. Also, I think you've cooked ribs so much now, like each time you're creating improvements and you understand how they work and temperatures and all that. And then it's like a craft, you're perfecting a craft and uh, you get to express yourself creatively, right? You might try different things. And uh, I know you've talked to me about doing a reverse sear and all things I've learned from you. So cooking is something I enjoy doing. One of my favorite Netflix shows uh, is this show called Chef's Table. And what I love about it is it's not only the meals they make and things like that, but it's the biography about the chef. And you start to learn, like there's this one guy who was a famous chef, and then he lost his sense of taste. Oh. So it's like, what is the worst thing? That That's awful. Ha- yeah. So I don't know. I don't remember where he is now, if he has like some percentage of it, but he lost it. And it's like this struggle he went through. So I don't know, just from the trials and triumphs, like you get the biographical part of like, oh, this is why this person loves cooking or this is why they cook this way or they show a clip of, you know, time they spent in grandma's kitchen and uh, cooking Italian food or whatever. It just, there's something about it for me. It's like, oh, cooking is a lot more than just recipes. So for listeners, Trevor really likes to make pizza. I do like to make pizza. And when you were talking about, you know, trial and error and testing things, how many different ways did you try to make dough? Oh, I've tried a lot of different ways. And it's funny, even like... uh, the I don't know what the it's act the call it's called in cooking, but like how long you let the dough proof, right? So we have these proofing boxes. So you it's really simple, right? Dough is just flour, water, yeast, and maybe some salt. Um, but then the technique is how long are you going to let it sit, and how long are you going to knead it, and um, all of those things. And like I was getting kind of obsessed and reading like oh like the impacts it has on how it breaks down the sugars and like where it'll bubble in the oven more and all that. So, yeah, it's a, it's a whole science pizza. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? So, yeah, I love this show, Chef's Table, and it reminded me a lot of investing because 
David Bonson is, you know, as uh, Stuart Barney always says in Fox News, you are the dividend guy, David Bonson. <laughs> That's pretty good. It was good, yeah. <laughs> um, so he is the dividend evangelist. And if you look at David's story, right, if we did a, a biography on David, right, he worked in the industry during the tech bubble, mm-hmm. right? So the late 90s, where it was speculators galore, he saw people make some paper money, right? Or money on paper. And then he saw people lose a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And he saw what happens when you speculate, hoping something will be worth more in the future than it is today, based on no fundamental reason beyond sentiment. So then it made him espouse to this philosophy that he wants to own companies that make real profits, profits that you can see, taste, touch, calculate. Uh, and companies that have leadership teams that want to share those profits in the form of a dividend with their shareholders. So that is at the core of what the Bonser Group does, right? So that's his recipe, but it doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes out of this experience of him having a front row seat for the tech bubble. Yeah, and that happens a lot of times as we get to know clients and you understand more of their story. And uh, they may be somewhat risk adverse or, or come across that way. And, and you can kind of see it in a lot of decisions of, of their life, whether it's their employment or um, the way they're invested. And then you, you find out that, you know, they're, they had like a tough home life growing up where their parents didn't have much and, and they had to, you know, share meals and, and money was tight. And you can kind of hear those, how those experiences are crafting, you know, their current strategy or their current risk tolerance. And you can almost, you have the aha moment like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. How many people have you met? that you would describe as extremely wealthy and still live quite frugally. It happens a lot. Yeah, I, I see it all the time where we laugh about it, but I'm encouraging people like, hey, I'm going to nudge you. Like, enjoy the fruits of your labor a little bit, right? Like, understand where the destination of these dollars is and can you enjoy it with your family now because your kids want that for you more than they want to inherit an extra dollar. I thought you were going to say something else. And uh, a client told me this, and it makes me laugh every time. Um, it's, he said, a friend of his asked him, you know, oh, you guys are going on a big trip somewhere far. And he's like, yeah. And he's like, are you flying business class or first class? And he's like, no, that's ridiculous. And he's like, oh, you know, you really should. Because if you don't, your kids will. And uh, I was like, oh, it's so true. Because I see it all the time. Like parents, first generation wealth, really good savers. Don't, they're very prudent. Don't spend a lot of money, like you said. And then the kids are like, yep, we're going to Aruba, first class. And, and that just kind of makes me chuckle. You had a you had a joke for me or a saying before, like, first generation drives this, second. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was like the grandfather, like, walks to work. And then the dad has, like, a used car, but he's able to make it to work. And then the, the grandson drives a Mercedes. And the great-grandson drives, like, a Ferrari. And his grandkid or his kids walk back to or walk into work. Oh, and it kind of shows of that cycle. Exactly. Yeah, so what I wanted to do in today's article, I called it the Allocator's Cookbook because uh, – I'm going to write the recipe for you, and I'm going to show you from my background how I've been influenced on designing portfolios. And Sean knows this about me. Some of our listeners will know, but I grew up racing BMX bikes where uh, usually you're going 20 to 25 miles an hour next to seven other competitors, and you're jumping 30-foot jumps. So it's called an extreme sport, and you would think that somebody does that is a risk taker. But Like you mentioned, I've seen a lot of friends and families struggle financially. So I have either a healthy fear or a healthy respect for money Mm -hmm. that um, if not treated with responsibility, 
it can disappear quite quickly. So I would define myself as risk averse. Now, that might not be what our listeners think, right? Like, oh, Trevor's risk averse, therefore he has all his money in cash. No, 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 no. I think it's more complex than that. But that is some of my background. I think it's important to recognize that because people think just because we work in this industry, like, oh, it's easy for us to be, you know, allocated a certain way. But, uh, you know, depending on our backgrounds, we still have the same, you know, thoughts and fears and those scary moments where you have to like, not second guess yourself, but you think like, wait a minute, yeah, this is the right way. And uh, you've mentioned times in the past too, where, you know, I think both your parents worked and your dad, he would never order at restaurants, right? When he just Mm -mm. finished everyone else's food. And I've always remember that because it's like, oh man, that's probably kind of telling that you're like, oh, I'm going to be pretty conservative where I can be. Yeah. And that's why for my recipe for allocating portfolios, I think I would surprise a lot of people, but I would say insurance first. And a lot of people are probably scratching their head like, what does he mean by that? What I mean is it's so incredibly hard to build wealth and you can lose that wealth in a moment, right? Uh, For some unforeseen litigation, car accident, health issue, uh, disability. So for me, I would say if you're starting this recipe and you're going to build a portfolio, I would make sure you have the appropriate coverages for the things that could totally be a meteor that just destroys your balance sheet. Yeah, I know uh, I've probably quoted this book probably four times in a row of our podcast, but uh, uh, same as ever. Mm-hmm. It, when I listen to it, I write down these quotes so I don't forget them. But it, he talks about, uh, you mentioned it later in the article, but he talks about like good things take time to compound. And they take a long time. Like companies, it takes forever for them to build a good reputation, grow their earnings, and, and earn the trust of their customers and investors. And it can it can go south in an instant. Like one bad decision can change years of hard work. And I, I think of that the same way. Yeah, I, there is a quote out there. I don't remember what it is, but like lifetime to build a reputation and you can destroy your cred- credibility in a moment. Yeah. Right? So for me, I think you have to look at in your life where is there excessive risk or gaps? And you need to put coverage there, right? You need to look at your auto, home, umbrella insurance, make sure those coverages make sense. You need to look at life insurance if you're the primary breadwinner. You need to look at disability insurance in case something happens where life insurance won't help, but you become disabled, right? You you need to fill these gaps that really saving and returns and time aren't going to solve for. Do you find a, like a pattern of people that may have the, that consistent blind spot or maybe be underinsured? I have mm. one if you don't. Okay, go ahead. I don't know what you mean. So like I have noticed that typically younger people, let's say age you know 40 to 50, younger, uh, who have a strong income tend to be underinsured at times. because, And I don't know if that's a – it's not a one-size-fits-all. Obviously, there's people that have done that planning. But I have come across multiple times where – they have really strong income, and so they kind of feel like, well, I could almost like self-insure if something were to happen, or um, maybe they have a, a portion of you know term or life insurance that would replace a portion of their income if something were happening. But they don't, they aren't able to think of like big picture, you know, like 10, 20 years, kids through college, pay off mortgage, or replacing your income with disability or, or something like that. And uh, I've just noticed almost like a majority of the time, I've noticed that they're underinsured on one side or the other. Yeah, and you're almost saying like even if they don't posture like uh, ego or ignorance or anything like that, there is like uh, an invincibility that they're expressing by not having that coverage to say like, hey, something unforeseen could happen and therefore 
the this would not be good for your balance sheet. Yeah, and I, I think we're all guilty of it too. Like we've talked about lifestyle creep, but you know our families get used to a certain lifestyle too. And so um, if you do have a small portion of disability or something like that, and you're thinking like, oh, they could get by. Yeah, maybe 10 years ago they could have, but now they're used to a certain lifestyle. Like, do, they're already going to be grieving. You want them to also cut their lifestyle in half and have to be like budgeting and she has to go get a job or, or he. And you know what I mean? It just, it just seems like uh, finding the blind spot is really important for people. Yeah, and with insurance, there's no other better word I could use. You get a lot of leverage right? For the type of insurance coverage I'm talking about is the really low probability events that therefore have a small cost to them, but significant payout if the need does arise, right? Mm -hmm. So auto insurance or whatever you want to think. But yeah, in my cookbook, being somebody I would describe as risk averse, I, I would tell people, friends, family, clients, start with insurance. Make sure you have all those coverages because I will say it again, I don't think like really good savings and really good returns are going to make up for something unforeseen happening. So yeah. sticking to the theme of being risk averse, after I look at insurance, I then go to safety nets. And in the article, I describe safety nets differently than I have in the past. I've written some articles on this before, but I describe it as just cash and credit lines. And what I want to look at is I want to look at, like Sean described, my lifestyle. And I want to be realistic, right? I, I've talked about this podcast before, the importance of being aware. So how much do I spend every month? And I want to look at my annual spending and use that as a, a reference point. It's not a perfect reference point, but I want to use those reference points to say, hey, how many years of average spending do I have set aside in cash and credit lines? And for somebody that is in more mature years, closer to um, wanting to stop working, I don't know what the number is, but something between two to four years available in crash, cash and credit lines, uh, I think, is prudent. Yeah, because the, the idea is you you want to replace that income. Well, I guess I'd ask you a question. If you designed the portfolio in retirement to take a lot of the income from that portfolio through retirement, and then there was some sort of event, do you look at the line of credit that if you needed more money than you expected, like normal, or is it so you have the opportunity to like let the dividends reinvest during better pricing? Or is that more of like an offensive strategy? Or is that just to maintain expenses? Yeah, I think the answer could be both, right? I think the hard part is when you're doing financial planning, you're never going to be like a NASA scientist who's going to get down to the hundredth decimal mm. to get an exact trajectory of where that rocket's going to land. You're going to make some general forecasts. Does that make sense? Yeah. So what I'm saying is like, okay, there there needs to be a safety net. I'm guessing that there's not going to be a surprise expense that just, if again, if you have the right insurance coverage, that you're not just going to come across like, oh man, I just got this bill in the mail for a million dollars. Like I didn't see this coming. So I like to anchor towards somebody's spending habits. So I think there's an offense and defense to it. Meaning if the world has an apocalyptic moment, which it feels like it does every seven to 10 years, then you could let the dividends reinvest and spend down some of those uh, cash, or yeah, line, cash or lines yeah. of credit or, or whatnot. I, again, I use that word safety net because I'm thinking it creates this redundancy and this word I use a lot in the article, optionality, which I think is huge in finance to say, okay, I could spend my dividends, I could sell securities, I could use cash, I could use credit lines. So a lot of people don't like credit lines. And I think when I talk about them, they get confused because I'm not telling you to borrow money. I'm saying, 
have it available to you, right? So have a line of credit associated with the equity on your home. Have a line of credit associated with the equity of your portfolio and have those in your back pocket if a need arises. So when I do this recipe for building a portfolio, again, scratch that itch of making sure all the insurance coverages, gaps, and potential risk are covered. Then next, look at your expenses, have some multiple two years, three years, four years in cash and credit lines. Then what does that allow you to do? It allows you then to lean into what I'm calling compounders, having some basket of stocks, real estate, high-yielding debt, private equity that is really going to accumulate wealth over time. But it's like having a, and you would understand this much better than me because you know football better, but you can have the greatest quarterback in the world, but if you don't have a good offensive line, it's not going to be much help. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. So it seems like this appropriate insurance coverage and these safety nets are your offensive line, and then you can go out and get the best quarterback, meaning you could build this portfolio of compounders. Yeah, that makes sense. I think another thing too is the line of credit, that safety net offers liquidity, even if it's in the very, very short term. Like I've seen times where people need access to money to help their kids buy a house or whatever it might be, and it's later in the year, and they've already satisfied their RMD for the year. They don't really want to take the money from an IRA, but they were like, oh, if they could just wait till January, it kind of resets that RMD number where they would be taking money out. And uh, I've seen where lines of credit can offer you know, a, a short-term bridge loan almost at a pretty low expense that they have control of. It's just nice for them to have options. Yeah, even if it's a few days. Sometimes uh, it's appropriate to sell securities to raise money for a new home purchase, but they want to go into escrow today and they want to put the earnest money, right? And you're like, oh, we can just wire from the line of credit today mm-hmm. and pay it back in three days. Yeah. So again, optionality. It's a word you don't hear a lot, but man, it is a beautiful thing when you come across a financial obstacle and you have three, four, five different options of what you can do, then you can lean into your preference and you don't feel cornered into having to make this one decision. You, you talk about later in the article, but uh, you know the fruits of your labor kind of by following this type of playbook, and this is very general, but I'm going to put together a parallel for you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you like to cook pizza, you have everyone over, you give everyone the pizza that they choose and their toppings, and they're all like, oh, this is great. Like, thanks. Right. And you mm-hmm. kind of take pride in it. Same thing in the financial side. There's, there's a really powerful feeling to be the one that you're, the fruits of your labor is able to help family members, you know, you're helping kids buy a house or a, a family member is in a tough spot and you're able to help them with a loan or whatever it is. It's, uh, it's pretty powerful to be that person in your family. Um, or friend group or whatever it might be. So the fruits of your labor by, you know, protecting yourself and putting together the right allocation and saving and compounding, it uh, it's more than just yourself. Yeah, and we use the word in the article, legacy, right? We said the last step of the recipe should be enjoy the meal. Mm-hmm. And in order to enjoy the meal, you have to sit down and decide what you want your legacy to look like. And, you know, I, I mentioned some off-the-wall examples, but for Andrew Carnegie, it was building libraries. And for... Bill Gates, it was for uh, trying to um, get rid of malaria, right? So for you, it's going to be something else. Uh, and, and who knows what it is, but it would be good if somebody asked you, what do you want your legacy to look like, um, that you've thought about it, right? And that you've uh, penciled that into the financial plan in, in some capacity. So um, that's the last ingredient. I'm going to go backwards just one step before we do wrap it up. Um, I did talk about in the article the importance of like, how you proportion these things, 
So since we've been talking a lot about pizza, I'll tell you something about pizza if you don't know. Um, you use a very, very, very little amount of yeast and use a very, very large amount, proportionally, of flour, right? Your portfolio should be thought about the same way. When I talk about those compounders, those are going to be what goes out and creates significant wealth accumulation, right? So the safety nets should be, in my view, diluted over time as you grow that basket of compounders. And you referenced the, the quote earlier, but it's a Charlie Munger quote that says, never disrupt compounding unnecessarily. In order to do that, you have those safety nets, but I do believe that you have to build your tolerance up over time because it actually might be the opposite of what we assume about finance, meaning this. A lot of us assume a 30-year-old can have all their money in stocks and a 70-year-old should have all their money in bonds. That might not be true. Maybe the 30-year-old still needs to build up those safety nets um, and maybe their compounding bucket proportionally isn't as large as you know what they're doing in, in cash and things like that. But for somebody that has um, a balance sheet that is dwarfing their lifestyle and their expense needs and their cash flow needs... I do think that person has room to open for more tolerance. And the, the analogy I make in the article is that when you're cooking, if you're going to use something spicy, you use something jalapenos, sometimes you need to offset it with a sour cream or avocado or something to be able to dilute some of that spice. And I'm going to submit to our listeners and our readers that, um, one, having an advisor alongside, uh, I have seen firsthand uh, help people tolerate markets a little bit more right? As they can lean into somebody and say, hey, show me history, help me be logical, help me to kind of do this. So I think uh, having an advisor alongside you can really help with tolerance and then also understanding um, inflation and the impact it can have on your money. Uh, If you're risk averse, um, I think you should also consider the deterioration inflation can cause on a portfolio. I was smiling at you because when you started to talk about the recipe and the pizza, I was wondering how you're going to incorporate, you know, guacamole and sour cream with the jalapenos. You never you, had a Mexican you pizza? Pi- you pivoted pretty quickly. It was oh, good. Oh, man, I love cooking. <laughs> so um, so that's it. Uh, what we really want to share with you today is that um, whether you're a chef or whether you're an allocator, allocating people's money, uh, you were influenced at some point in your life. Uh, for David Bonson, we talked about the tech bubble and... Uh, why that led him to be a dividend evangelist and uh, why we joined to be a dividend evangelist alongside him. Uh, and then I walked you through my cookbook, uh, even though I used to jump 30-foot jumps and uh, go elbow to elbow 25 miles an hour on a little BMX bike. Um, I still understand that um, wealth is something that should be respected and uh, you should try to build a moat around your balance sheet. Uh, and that's what we walked you through today. So thank you for listening. encourage you to read the article. Uh, we appreciate you. So if you want to send an email with a comment or a question um, or a recipe, you're welcome to. Uh, you can reach us at tom, T-O-M, at thebonsagroup.com. You can address that to Sean or Trevor. Um, also, we'd ask that you rate the podcast five stars or preferred. We appreciate that as well. And of course, we'll be back next week with more of our Thoughts on, on Money. money. 
The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan.